Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Achtung, achtung. Hello, welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray and uh, James Holland. Today, given that it's Remembrance Sunday, um, we thought we would talk about remembrance. Because after all, um, on this podcast, we talk about the, the operational level, the tactical level, the strategic, the tales of daring do, the kit, the gear, the things that we, um, uh, the new ways of looking at it, old ways of looking at it, all the myriad of things that the Second World War offers. But at the heart of the subject uh, is, after all, death, loss, and consequently remembrance. Who has joined us today? We've got Glenn Prosser here, who is a historian. He's written a brilliant book called Citizen Sailors um, about the Royal Navy in the Second World War. And he was also the former historian of the Commonwealth War Graves Commission. And I thought it'd be interesting to call upon Glenn to kind of give us a bit of background about Fabian Ware and the start of the Commonwealth War Grace Commission and how it all began and why it is what it is and why is it that when you travel overseas and you suddenly find this little corner of England and it all looks exactly the same um, because it's it's such a sort of you know in in our remembrance I think those cemeteries those those carved headstones it it's such a part of of the kind of our culture isn't it and our culture of remembrance well, Glenn, welcome. Um, I notice over your shoulder on your bookshelf, there's a book that's that, that's 1916 down its spine. And that's that's really the, where this all begins, isn't it? Is that you have all of a sudden the nature of uh, conflict has changed for Britain. Um, previously, armies are siphoned from uh, uh, the you know scum of the earth, uh, uh, Wellington, Wellingtonian classes and the officer class, which is people who, who are from military families or fourth sons of bankrupt nobles, as it were. You, 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 the, that's the that's the pencil sketch. But the difference with the First World War is suddenly everyone's involved. 
and suddenly it necessarily changes remembrance. Absolutely. Uh, uh, hello, guys. It's good to be with you. And, um, you know, yeah, I think that the First World War changes everything in terms of the way that the British Empire does remembrance. And what was then called the Imperial Wargraves Commission was set up at the height of the fighting, 1917, in many ways, the, the kind of nadir, the low point for, for the British Empire. And there's this kind of extraordinary vision of... Uh, remembrance or a, a kind of form of commemoration that would endure, um, that would, you know, at once it would kind of mark the the achievements of, of the armies, of all of the soldiers from across the British Empire who fought, um, but would also honour them kind of in perpetuity. You know, what had happened earlier, you know, for, for centuries was that you know, ordinary people didn't necessarily have a, a grave that would last. You know, it wasn't a given that, that, that any kind of form of, of commemoration and memorial would, would last uh, the test of time. So the idea was to set up something that would endure, that would still be there in perpetuity and that would mark uh, not just the exploits, but also the sacrifices of, of all of those who took part. And it's something that, of course, is so familiar to us today. But at the time, it was, it was very new. Because uh, after all, the, the Waterloo battlefield, um, if, you were, if you had money, your body might get taken home. Brought, brought back to England. I mean, this is the English soldiers, or British soldiers fighting uh, for, for Wellington. Because after all, his army, I mean, we don't need to go into that, it's from all over. The common men, they're, in, they were, they're bunged in a mass grave and forgotten about, basically, aren't they? This is the big difference. So, you know, with the First World War, particularly after uh, conscription comes in, halfway through the war for, for Britain, you know, you've got, uh, it, it's a democratic uh, zeitgeist almost you know this is at the same time as, as voting rights being extended across across Britain the idea that that everyone had contributed to this kind of national international effort you know really led to that sense that you had to do something for these ordinary soldiers uh, and the, the the two key elements I think in in creating what we what we're so familiar with today is number one not bringing the bodies home you know you've touched on it that was a big deal. That meant that what you would do is create cemeteries in the places where people died. And that's why today we have cemeteries and memorials all over the world. Um, and the second thing was that every headstone would be uniform. You know, there'd be no distinction between the wealthy and the poor. And that, you know, in many ways was the more controversial issue, particularly for, for the wealthier families who, who wanted to build these grand memorials to their sons. You know, the idea that everyone would be the same, and particularly if you wanted a cross, you couldn't have a cross. You know, the, the, the headstones are, are uniform, they're those familiar rectangular shapes, because, of course, the religions that people came from across the empire were, were so diverse as well. So, you know, at the time, it, it kind of seems to us now that this was a, almost an inevitable thing. You know, it speaks to us so much in the modern world, in the 21st century, you know, the idea that everyone should be the same and everyone should be treated equally. But at the time, incredibly controversial. But, but, but Glyn, I mean... Just how did, how did it sort of come about? Because it, it was this rather remarkable fellow called Fabian Ware who sort of kicked, kicked, kicked the ball in the first place, wasn't he? And, and sort of got the whole ball rolling. And, and then and then there's this sort of this really extraordinary committee gets developed to kind of sort of go, OK, well, we're going to do this, but this is this is how it should look. That's right. I mean, Fabian Ware is the kind of driving force behind it, and he is often held up as the kind of architect of all of this. Uh, he was working with a Red Cross unit on the Western Front. He was too old to, to fight himself. Uh, and he r realised that there was a problem with, with marking graves, registering graves. He really pushed the military, the army, to, to take this under their, under their wing. Uh, and he had this amazing kind of set of skills and, uh, and experiences that made him perfect. You know, he'd served in South Africa in the Boer War, where he'd seen what happened to the graves of, of ordinary soldiers. He was uh, a Francophile, you know, he could speak French, really useful in terms of, you know, uh, liaising with the French authorities. Uh, he was a newspaper man, so he knew how to sell a story. You know, he was, he was really well connected with the royal family and, and with the kind of establishment in Britain. So all of this stuff came together to make him really the perfect kind of conduit for this spirit of wanting to do something. So he's going around rattling the tin, trying to get money uh, together together for this. Who So... Uh, how does he how does he go about that because i know I, um my um, my father looked into the looked into the, the the mini cenotaph we have in in stukeley in buckinghamshire in the village i grew up in and that there were you know there was a committee and then there's a there's so there's national remembrance there's local remembrance joining the two up finding the money for it how you coordinate across 
villages. So, for instance, in Stukeley, there's a guy who's on the war memorial in Solbury as well. He's in two villages because he was a local bigamist. He had a, <laughs> a family in each village. So he's commemorated in both villages. How, how, does this, um, how does he start to join this up and where is he getting the money from? Well, the big difference in the First World War in the Wargroves Commission is that it's uh, it's an international, an empire effort. So, but it's effectively a state effort, and this is incredibly new. And this is, you know, uh, apart from everything else, this is possibly the most controversial thing. You know, as you said, there's a kind of tapestry of remembrance, little local personal memorials, uh, families doing their own thing, local villages and towns getting committees together, you know, local businessmen that kind of thing. This is different. This is the state not only taking kind of ownership of bodies uh, and taking responsibility for them, but also paying, um, paying for this to happen, paying for, for the kind of commemoration of for individual families. And before that, you know, the only time this really happens is if you've got a kind of pauper's grave. You know, the idea that the state would pay for your grave is really quite new and quite uncomfortable for people who come from a kind of Victorian sense of kind of funerals and, and that kind of tradition. Well, which after all, fun- f- funeral culture is a Victorian invention anyway. Um, that the, 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 the sort of whole commercialisation and creation of funeral culture and the, the enormous sort of funereal uh, gardens and cemeteries outside London that you could, you know, commute to Waterloo from and all that sort of thing. That's all a Victorian invention anyway. So this is a this is a disruption of that that uh, f- newly established tradition, isn't it? It is. And, you know, the idea that, that you would need the state to, to, to give you a handout to pay for your grave is, you know, really anathema to lots of people. They didn't like that idea. Uh, and it took a while for the, you know, it was only really when the plans for, for what these places would look like, what this was really all about, started to filter through that people became much more comfortable with this idea. But, but Glyn, isn't one of the one of, one of the key markers, is, isn't that when the Prince of Wales comes on board? Yes. So this is kind of 1917. You've got, the, this is another really important element of this. It's an imperial real endeavour. So it's not just Britain doing its own thing, it's an empire effort. So there are representatives from across the dominions as they were then, Canada, South Africa, New Zealand. Um, There are representatives for South Africa and for India, for the colonies as well. And so, you know, from the beginning, Fabian Ware recognises that this has to be an imperial effort. And part of the reason for that is that he doesn't want uh, the British government to get their hands on this, particularly Alfred Mond, the kind of director of works. And there's this real tussle between those two guys over who's going to be in control of this. Uh, and in the end, Fabian Ware manages to get get his hands on on on, on this commemoration. Uh, for Alfred Mond, they give him the project which became the Imperial War Museum, almost as a you know to, as a payoff. You know, he gets that, he gets the War Museum. Fabian Ware gets to do his great scheme for this Empire commemoration, and that's really what removes it from the grasp of the British government. And still, you know, even today, that's that's a really important part of of the Commission's work. You know, it's it's a it's a, a cross Commonwealth organisation. So, but from the very beginning, the idea was you commemorate the Empire and all of the people from across the empire and this is about this is about a, a shifting um uh, idea of a, a basically of a sort of social contract isn't it between the empire and its subjects as it were that that if you're asking because after all in in german states in the 19th century if you're a rifleman you got the vote you know you that that was your active citizenship qualification and there's a there's an el- there's a, an element of that in this isn't there that, that, that in a way and also this idea that that you can't ask people to join a mass army and be and give their lives and not commemorate them that you're going to you're not going to be able to mobilize people and it's as much part it's as much part of or smart people will know it's as much part of that it's a morale thing as much as anything else is that you're not going to be forgotten yeah and i think you know the 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 fact that this happens during the war is really important as well you know the idea that they yeah. were already um, you know, as I said, at some of the hardest moments of the war for Britain, already planning for the future and what would happen. And that whether you were, you know, a major general or a private soldier, you'd have the same treatment. That's really important. Glyn, I mean, t- tell me a little bit about the commission, because it's it's Sir Frederick Kenyon, who is the director of the British Museum, is the guy who's put in charge of that. And there's some really interesting characters that are brought in, not least, of course, um, Lutyens, um, the, the famous architect, Rudyard Kipling, um, you know, he he's the guy who comes up with the immortal line, you know, um, known unto God and their name liveth forevermore and all this kind of stuff. Uh, and there's sort of celebrity gardeners, aren't there, who are sort of all brought in, which gives it, a, a, and it's this commission, as I understand it, 
that work on the on the, the look of these these cemeteries which are now so familiar you know the crusader sword there's a debate about that isn't there and the cross and there's certain things that all these cemeteries have isn't there yeah that's right and i think you know the, we, fabian Ware is often given the credit for all of this but actually the great thing that he does is brings all these guys together it's like the a team of commemoration in the first world war you know it's like <laughs> the, the kind of the poet of empire kipling you know you've got the the greatest architects of, of the day in britain blomfield lutchins um, and also actually lots of, of junior architects, um, people who'd, who'd fought during the war, veterans who were brought in to help those kind of great men uh, develop these ideas. And often they're the guys who actually do the legwork. You know, as ever, the big names get the credit, but it's a whole, a whole load of, of people working as a team to, to do this, uh, including people... And Gertrude Jekyll. Well. Gertrude Jekyll, yeah, and people from the Kew Gardens... Uh, who actually go out to the battlefields while the war's still being fought and have a look and you know look at the ground, look at how they can how they can um, best make these places beautiful. Um, but already by the end of the war, the army and, and what was called the graves registration units, they're already marking graves. They're already setting up little cemeteries on the battlefields, you know, making them beautiful. Even taking photos of the graves to send home to relatives. So all of this kind of evolves as they go through. So what what happens to um, if if it comes into being in 1917? What? How is it that all those who are killed in 1914, 15, and 16 before it's come into being? How are they? How do they then end up in these cemeteries? Why are they not all just shoved in a big pit like everyone has been in the past? Well, it's partly because they were buried at the time by their comrades. So if you imagine the earliest part of the fighting in 1914, um, in somewhere like Ypres, you know, you've got little battlefield cemeteries, uh, towns behind the lines where people are, are buried, um, and and further back as well in the, the kind of medical centres. Um, one of the big problems that they had in the First World War, of course, and we'll come on to the second and how it's different, but uh, lots of people's graves from those early years were lost. You know, as the fighting went to and fro, you know, where people had been buried, maybe they were blown up by artillery, maybe the records were just lost. And so what you get at the end of the First World War is a huge number of missing, you know, of about a million dead of the British Empire, about half of them are missing. They have no known grave. And so a big problem that you had is not just creating cemeteries and and kind of uh, formalising cemeteries that were already there. You have to work out how to commemorate people who don't have a grave, who don't have a, a marked grave. And that's why you get these huge memorials to the missing, places like the Menin Gate in Ypres, 55,000 names, Tietval Memorial on the Somme, 72,000 names. You know, these huge memorials, again, that principle of uniformity, you know, every name the same in those long lists by regiment. You know, I'm sure you know, many of the listeners will, will have been and visited these places. That, uh, aside from anything else, is is the big difference in the first world war you know the fact that you've got these memorials on the battlefields whether you've got a grave or whether you don't have a grave you're treated in the same way how how was the headstone settled on i mean uh, i'm I'm, again i'm sure many of our listeners know this but how do they arrive at this design because i mean uh, i'm sort of loath to use the word but it's like it is an iconic design it's it's instantly recognizable uh, and like you say the uniformity of the uh, uh, is is a big part of the approach that they decide on, you know, as a, as a not just an, as an aesthetic as well as a as well as a, um, a simple policy. How do they arrive at the at the headstone? Well, as ever, there's a committee um, and people put in their their uh, their advice, and then Kenyon uh, and various other bigwigs decide on what they're going to do. Um, but I think it's worth thinking a little bit about what's actually on the headstone. You know, um, the first thing is this kind of military identity. You know, this is something we underestimate today. You know, when you look at that headstone, what you get first is is the military identity, the number, the rank, the name, uh, and any awards that were that were given, DSO, you know, uh, VC, whatever it is. Um, and you've got a religious symbol. So the big debate was over whether you should allow people to have a cross, uh, you know, whether the headstone should be cruciform. And that's the thing that really gets the kind of... Uh, people writing into the Times and various things like that. That's the thing that's controversial. You know, the idea that you wouldn't allow people to have a cross. But actually, you know, when we look back, we see what a good uh, idea that was. Because when you look at those cemeteries, you don't get a random selection of different shapes and sizes. They're all uniform, almost like um, soldiers on parade. You know, yes, and again, that's US, part of it. In a, in a US graveyard, there are crosses except there's the old Star of David every, uh, here and there and all that sort of thing. Um, because because they, they've adopted a different a different approach 
in that respect, haven't they? Absolutely. And if we go back to what the architects of the Commission were trying to do, they're trying to commemorate the Empire. They're trying to talk about how great the British Empire is. And the big problem they have at that time is India. You know, the big thing that they're all worried about is that the empire is going to splinter and that, that it's been weakened and they want to kind of bolster this idea of imperial effort. And if you ignore all of the Muslims and the Hindus and the Sikhs from, from the Indian empire, then you've got yeah. a real problem. Um, so I think, you know, that that is a big decision, big controversial decision. Um, but the other thing that you've got on a headstone, of course, that I think is probably the most touching thing, the most poignant thing when you go and visit, is the inscription from the family at the bottom. That personal message from yes, and how does that work? How, how are they? Are they allowed a certain number of letters? They are, they are, and again, this is a, a you know again a, a kind of controversial element, you know whether they would be allowed them or not. You know, the first uh, the first uh, way time round, they ask for a contribution, a monetary contribution, so they pay by the letter, almost like sending a telegram. And today that seems a bit weird to us. You know, why on earth would they ask families to pay? But it goes back to that Victorian idea that families would want to contribute something towards the commemoration. Um, and so you get all kinds of different things, you know, biblical quotes, you get messages about, you know, God and king and empire. And you also get these really kind of personal messages about loved ones missing them at home uh, and, you know, messages from daughters and sons. Um, and there's a huge variety of different messages on there that I think give them that that personal touch alongside the military identity. You know, you've got the military and the civilian identity in one. And in a way, that's the genius of it. You know, that's that's the, mm. the, the, the big thing that I think makes it so touching today. I remember standing in the uh, in the cemetery just below the tennis court in Kohima and, and looking at this chap from the 1st Dorsets. I think it was the 1st Dorset. Anyway, the Dorset Regiment, uh, just down the road from me. Uh, and he was... I think 2021 20, and uh, the inscription was um, to the world he was a soldier but to us he was the world and it was just you just thought Jesus you know that you know his, his mum and dad are never going to come over and see him you know it's just too far away and it's, it's just heartbreaking it really is so, well uh, which which leads me James talking about Kohima there who's looking after those uh, to, to bring it up to, to today Who's looking after those graves? How's that paid for? How's that managed? How's it managed in a country that might um, be chaotic or not exactly one of our modern day friends? How does how's that organised and paid for? Well, that's a really good question. In terms of the money, the, the money comes from the member governments. So the UK contributes about 80 percent through the Ministry of Defence. Um, but Canada contributes, uh, South Africa, New Zealand and Australia, India as well. Um, so it's it's a kind of combined effort. Um, but, you know, this problem of, of how do you operate in places that are difficult goes all the way back to the First World War and through the Second World War. Um, and now there are teams on the ground all over the world that, that, that work really hard to, to maintain these places. And, you know, if you think of somewhere like Iraq, you know, war graves from the First World War, from the Second World War uh, and from more recent conflicts as well, of course. Uh, the great thing with the commission is that it's kind of it's meant to be in perpetuity. So the idea is that, you know, if there's trouble for, for a few years, you wait, you bide your time and then you come back in when things are improving and, and you, you get back there. And, you know, throughout its history, you know, over 100 years now, there have been all kinds of conflicts and difficulties, not least the Second World War, of course. Um, but the commission mm -hmm. has always been able to come back in due course uh, and, and maintain that. And really, it's, you know, it's the men and women all over the world that, that do that hard graft and look after these places. Um, and, you know, the budget's about 60 million. So in the grand scheme of things, you know, not a huge amount of money. Um, and it goes an awful long way. You know, it's, it's uh, 150 different countries all, all around the world where, where it operates. There are some amazing ones. I mean, I mean, I was talk talking to Al last night about this. Uh, I mean, you know, one of the, one of the, one of the most beautiful um, is it Castiglione di Pepoli, which is, is sort of in the, in the Apennines, just north of between sort of north, halfway between sort of Florence and Bologna. Uh, and it's just beautiful, sort of rolling hills and, you know, the mountains in the distance. And a lot of South Africans there from the 6th um, uh, South African Armoured Division. Uh, a lot of guardsmen as well, because they were their brigade was attached to them. Um, and, and that's a particularly beautiful one. But I, I, I suppose the one that kind of I, I found the most remarkable was the one at, at near Majerda, in the Majerda Valley um, in northern Tunisia. Uh, and, you know, it's a really sort of dusty kind of sort of sort of uh, sort of dry plain kind of you know very red soil uh, and you, you know you go down this track and the the tarmac runs out and and you're sort of rattling along and you're thinking where the hell is this place it's 
must have taken a wrong turn. And then suddenly there's a wall and this sort of canopy of trees and you park outside and inside it, it is the proverbial English garden. I mean, there are the rose trees, the perfectly manicured lawn. I mean, you know, it, it's absolutely astonishing. Um, but I also think it's really interesting how other nations deal with it. I mean, we've, we've touched on the United States, but but, you know, the Germans also have a very different approach to it, which was, you know, obviously start begun in I think the late 1950s and mainly in the 1960s where they didn't have any kind of uniformity there was um they would put out to tender different they'd say okay we're going to create a cemetery they put out to tender different architects would have um different opinions and some of them are absolutely awful I mean um the one at the Futa Pass is just it's just really really depressing the one at Alamein is really depressing it's a mausoleum rather than the, uh, the one in the, the cemetery the one the one in the Ardennes at Bastogne as well is is, is really grim it's, it's, it's really grim six guys but, to a tiny grey headstone I mean it's yeah, awful but the one at the one in Sicily um, at Mr Bianco just north uh, west of Catania is it's just a thing of absolute beauty it's in this beautiful kind of olive grove um, overlooking the plain of Catania on the sort of southern slopes of Etna, and it's this, and it, and it's made with those kind of very thin Roman bricks. You, you know, they're very distinct. They're much thinner than, than your normal brick, uh, and it's a square block with four rooms. And you you go up the steps, and in the first one is a catafalque of a kind of sort of prostrate, naked, bronze man on the on on the floor, which is a, is very arresting to start off with. And then you've got these walls with with. Um, further names and you've got these stones on the, on the ground these sort of slabs with names on and and the, it, it's open to the to the heavens and to the skies so it's it's got no roof on it and it is a profoundly moving place it's it's a, a real place of serenity and beauty and it's amazing how i kind of, sort of think they get it right and they get it wrong and the other thing i thought was really really interesting is is you know if you go to alamein in, in egypt You've got them all in a row. So you've got the British one, which just looks like all the other British ones. Then you've got the sort of rather grim and austere um, German mausoleum. And then you've got the Italian one, which just has permanent kind of sort of fanfare music playing the whole time and flowers absolutely everywhere. And I don't know, it just sort of each of those three seems to sort of conform to our, our kind of stereotypes of what how we view those those different countries. It's very it's kind of funny, really. Glenn, which is the which is the smallest of the uh, CWGC? Uh, well, I mean, you would say that there are plenty of places where you've just got one grave or two graves, and I think the thing to remember above all is you don't have to go to uh, abroad uh, to kind of weird and wonderful places to see graves. You know, we've got them right here in the UK. Um, you know, you can go to any uh, local churchyard; you'll find war graves from the Second World War, particularly RAF crews. You know. Um, but, you know, there are big kind of thousands of grave cemeteries and lots of little uh, graves too. But actually one of the interesting differences between the Second and the First World War is that the First World War, you know, you tend to think of these Western Front cemeteries, little ones dotted across the landscape. Second World War, they tend to be bigger. They tend to be fewer of them uh, and bigger. Um, and that's partly because they did things slightly differently during the Second World War. Um, they didn't have as much money for a start. Uh, and so what they tended to do was you know, collect them, concentrate them into, into a few bigger cemeteries. So Alamein's a great example of that. They knew they couldn't have lots of cemeteries across the desert. But they're, generally speaking, they tend to be where there's been field hospitals or, or clearing stations or, or whatever. That's right. And is, is that right? Yeah, so in the Second World War, the, the big thing that, they, that they've got going for them is they know what they're doing. You know, First World War, they're making it up as they go along. Second World War, it's already established. And in fact, you've got some amazing photos of the Western Front before the German uh, attack in, in May 1940. So you've got British soldiers visiting the cemeteries of the First World War in France and Belgium in 1939-1940 and looking at the graves of the previous generation who fought that war. It's, it's incredible. And then after the German invasion, you've got photos of German soldiers visiting those cemeteries too. In fact, if you go to the Tietval Memorial on the Somme, you can walk right up inside it. There's a huge spiral staircase that goes up inside the memorial. And you can get right out onto the top of the memorial and look out over the battlefield. Incredible view. But the door that goes out onto that, that platform, there's German graffiti on the side of it from the Second World War, where German soldiers, it's obviously a lookout point or something like that, they'd gone, they left graffiti there. So they were visiting those cemeteries, those battlefields as well. Uh, and for me, that gives me kind of shivers. It's incredible to see those, those sites. And then, of course, in 1944 and 45, the Allies are fighting back 
through the same battlefields. And there's an amazing photo of, of Montgomery visiting Vimy, a place that Hitler had visited in 1940, one of the few places he actually bloody visited on his way over. And Monty goes there uh, in late 1944, goes to the cemetery right next to the Vimy Memorial, Canadian Cemetery Number no. 2, and he goes to the grave of an unknown Staffordshire uh, and kneels down at the grave and looks at it. And it's an amazing photo. It's worth, worth Googling. Uh, and I, we went there and I actually remember going and finding that grave that, that, that Monty had gone to, to look at. So there's this this kind of you know by the Second World War there's this there's already this tradition has been established, and so you know the, the system in place is much better in the Second World War, and so you get far fewer missing. You know there aren't these big memorials to the missing. There are some, um, but they, the na- the numbers of names on them are far fewer. You know in the Far East there are a few big memorials to the missing because of things like the Burma Railway, where graves are much harder to, to record and, and to, to, to find. Well, doesn't that also re- reflect that the Second World War, there's a different attitude to conflict as well, that it, it's, it's not the glories of the imperial effort so much anymore. It's become even more democratised, um, uh, uh, which is, after all, the thing the army are worrying about the entire time, you know, is that, that, that it's a big part of their attitude to their men, is that these, these guys are voters now. It's all changed. Uh, and and again, you've got you you know you you what you don't do is uh, do great big flashy commemorations which you, or commemorations that could be regarded as flashy by some to uh, to, to the war dead because the, because things have changed. Is that would, would you say that's fair? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, at the beginning of the Second World War, there was a there was a debate about whether they should carry on with the same system. You know, this is the war to end all wars in the First World War. Well, hang on a minute. It hasn't actually ended all wars. Should we do something different for the Second World War? Um, should we have a different design, a different approach? But actually, pretty quickly, it's decided that, no, you know, this, this should continue, that the Wargraves Commission should carry on and do its thing for the Second World War as well. The idea that there's this kind of con- continuity of effort. Um, and yeah, there's no question that, that, that you know, repatriation again, uh, was an issue, but it, but because that precedent had been set, because this idea of this is the way we do it um, was already there, that debate was was much easier. But there are cultures still around the world where you know repatriation for for kind of various reasons is still a, a big problem. I remember uh, meeting a, a Maori a New Zealander called Witi Ipamara. We had a really interesting conversation about his uh, one of his family members who'd been killed in in North Africa. Uh, and he was saying, look, in my culture, we need the body. We need to bring him home. We need to bury him and honour him in our way. Why can't we do this? Uh, and, you know, that's a really difficult question to answer. You know, it's not enough just to say, well, that's the policy. You know, that's that's what we do, you know. Um, it, it's a really kind of still a very emotive issue for lots of people. That's a tension, isn't it, between the idea that all imperial subjects... Um, uh, are equal under the empire rather than under God because we've removed God from the equation by allowing all religious symbols, haven't we? But in fact, how do you respect uh, those local cultures within within that system? I mean, I, I remember going to Crete. The, the, the graveyard at Crete is particularly beautiful. You know, you you drive through sort of water parks and um, uh, shabby half-built buildings and, you know, the, the sort of stuff you get in a place that's a holiday resort. You come down into this in a little bay, and again, rose bushes and lawns and signs of signs of of, of British commemoration or British imperial commemoration. And I remember standing there and looking, and there's lads from New Zealand and Yorkshire and all and all over the world, because after all, you know, the, the Creek Battle is is sort of a, a, a waypoint on, on, on a shit scramble out of. Greece anyway so everyone's everyone's coming through it's like an entrepot military entrepot so you've got people from everywhere and I very much I remember standing there and really really thinking god what what must it have been like to be a lad from New Zealand in who's come up to fight in North Africa probably you ended up in Greece is scarpering back out through New Zealand and gets caught in the fight caught and killed in the fighting here and and I I, I mean I again I Obviously, I completely appreciate that a, guy, a Maori guy from New Zealand saying, I, my culture, but the, how it tells you the story of the war, how it shows you, and Jim and I talk about this a lot, that this is a genuinely global event in every, in every sense of the, descri- the description, and that there's a boy from New Zealand lying next to a guy from Yorkshire, uh, and their pro- next to a guy from for the Punjab exactly you know. and uh, exactly and with their officers you know all these things all going on at once that are, I think are, are, 
really do tell a story of a pe- an imperial war, but a people's war as well, which I think is really, really interesting. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with that. And actually, you know, I've been lucky enough to interview a, a, a few Ma- Maori who fought in the Second World War. And I, and I remember going to the cemetery in Fiedeville, uh, where there were a number of the Maoris, the, the 28th Maori Battalion was caught up in a very sharp fight at a place called Takruna um, in northern Tunisia. And, it, and it, you know, it is really, really moving to see those Maori graves and, and to see them and see that, you know, some of the fellows that the guys I interviewed were talking about and they're, they're their mates and they you know I mean I talked to one guy called Mikey Parkinson he you know he lost a leg at Takruna and 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 he lost several of his really really good mates and there they all are and yeah you know, such a long way from home and I think that's the thing that really caught me when I was at Kahima you know you look down and you just think god you know someone from and what I didn't say was was but it said you know from you know love always from mum afterwards and it's and it's pathetic in in the truest sense of the word. This this sort of is desperate that that you know for for someone in 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 the nineteen forties you literally couldn't be further from from Dorset, being in Kahima and ending up being buried there. You might as well be on the moon. Yeah, you might as well be on the moon. Exactly that. You know, it's fascinating. But but Glyn, what is the process? So the process, as I understand it, you know, it, it's certainly in the Second World War. It, if you die, you you know your mates bury you. Um, there's there's always chats in these um, and, and conversations in in particularly in memoirs and diaries and stuff where they talk. You know, I had to organise a burial party. You know, we had to bury you know Charlie or whatever it is. So they get buried wherever they get buried. Um, a, a you know a, a rough cross is made if they're lucky. A, a, a rifle's put in with the helmet on top and the dog tags. You take one, you leave one, and at some point the graves registration people turn up and disinter them and put them back into a you know so you can end up being buried and and disinterred and buried again sort of three or four times yeah that's right and you know in terms of telling a story um that can often if you know if you're really kind of geeky about it you look into the data um if you go to somewhere like Bayeux war cemetery you know, you can also mm. almost see the little collections of graves. You know, when you look at actually the, the, the website, the cwgc.org website, it's amazing. You can see all these documents uh, if you really want to dig into it. Um, but you can find uh, groups of people who died at the same time. Uh, you can work out where they were originally buried, you know, maybe close to the coast, close to the landing beaches, then where they were moved, you know, to another another kind of holding cemetery, and then buried finally in Bayeux. So you've almost got a kind of narrative, a story of that that kind of burial process and that commemoration process as well. Mm. Um, and that, you know, I think, you know, the, how lucky we are to have these places on the sites where it happened. I mean, Kohima is a, a yeah, great no, example. No, I, I, I and totally the fact agree. that the tennis court is almost built into the architecture of that cemetery yes. or somewhere like Casino, yes. you know, you can look up, there's the mountain, there's the place where, mm. where these people died and this, this vast cemetery yeah. with all the people. So, yeah, I think, you know, the, the idea that these places tell a story is so true. And, and each grave, each group of graves tells all kinds of different stories, not just about the fighting, but also what happened afterwards. Yeah, I'm doing some, uh, um, as Al and, and regular listeners will know, I'm doing this work on the Sherwood Rangers Yeomanry at the moment. And um, the Padre, one of the Padres that was attached to the 8th Armoured Brigade was specifically attached to um, the Sherwood Rangers called um, Padre Leslie, Leslie Skinner. Uh, and he was with them from sort of D-Day all the way, way through. And, and he made an absolute point of making sure that everyone got buried you know even if they'd been in a tank and re- reduced to nothing um and he kept a book um a burial book and, and a casualty book um which one can still see at the um imperial war museum although the um the, the regimental association also sort of published it in a kind of sort of you know in, in its as a sort of facsimile version with his own handwriting and all the rest of it and it's a remarkable record and it, and he was extraordinary and his diary is littered with kind of you know i had to wait three days before i could get into that tank because it was so hot um, and he would always scrape out something. He would always get something, even if it was, you know, had been morphed mass of five men, um, because he felt it was absolutely his his Christian duty to make sure that these men didn't remain in the belly of a cast iron, you know, steel hull you know that they were buried in the ground and properly remembered and so he would mark all the graves work out where they were and he spent an awful lot of time after the battle you know after the fighting really just immediately after the fighting accounting for absolutely everybody making notes 
um, making sure that they were recognised, making sure that he collected the dog tags, making sure that they he'd, he'd um, notified people, and and it's remarkable, really, and 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 it's people like him, you know, everyone just sort of doesn't think about because it just sort of happens, but it doesn't just happen, you know. There are people like him across the British Army uh, and across the armed forces and across the Commonwealth forces doing similar sort of jobs, and it's remarkable, really. Yeah, and the idea that they're they're going into battle somewhere like Normandy with crosses with them ready to mark the graves you know they know what's going to happen um and you know again in terms of morale and and the kind of democratic you know, the people's war uh, you know it's a really important element of it you know that the people know what's going to happen there's it's kind of uh you know it's fair uh, it's um transparent everyone knows what's what's going to happen and then it comes down to, as you said to you know whether people can actually do that you know, somewhere like Alamein after the battle, you know, loads of mines, unexploded ordnance, you know, going in there and marking these graves. It's a dangerous job. You know, it's not a very pleasant thing. And, you know, I think these kind of unsung heroes, not only during the war, but after the war as well, you know, imagine digging up bodies that have already been buried and moving them and reburying them in the cold, in the wet. I mean, the accounts from, from the teams that went over to uh, to the Western Front, um, they got there in about uh, September 1944. So the fighting is still, you know, it's only just finished in terms of the Normandy campaign. And they've got, you know, a tin shed and a couple of guys and a couple of spades. You know, there isn't this big organisation. It's pretty hand-to-mouth. And, you know, the, the local area is pretty devastated. And, and they have to go around trying to do this work of creating these cemeteries. You know, I think the one thing that they that they did give them was a chauffeur, because if you left your car, they had a car to go around. If they left it unattended, the, the petrol would be nicked, the tyres would be nicked, you know, it would be stripped. So the one <laughs> thing they gave them was a chauffeur. Um, but yeah, I mean, and this went on for years. You know, it was only really in the 1950s that people were able to get into Africa, uh, into the Far East, and start this process of, of trying to find graves. And you imagine what the conditions would have been like uh, somewhere like the Burma Railway, um, uh, along, along the Burma Railway, trying to go and find those graves in the jungle. I mean, it's unimaginable. And it's something that when you see these kind of perfect manicured lawns, you know, in some ways, it does disguise that fact. It disguises that that kind of grim reality of what this was all about. You know, this isn't a kind of, uh, you know, this isn't something that you can kind of gloss over. This was really grim, a grim business. Uh, and although it's these places are beautiful and they give people that kind of that sucker and that sense that that they'll be taken care of and that they they know that there will always be flowers laid on their son's grave. Um, you know, the process to get there, you know, is long and it's hard. Uh, and it carries on today, of course. Now, um, a couple of years ago, I was, I was involved in a, a thing called Dig Hill 80, where um, we did a, a, an archaeological dig on a, in a place called White Sheet uh, outside Ypres. And, uh, and, Witzkater, uh, Witzkater. White Sheet. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and this dig, um, I mean, it was, I, went, I went, on one of the, went out on one of the last days of the thing. And uh, it was an absolutely shocking place to visit. The locals said, oh, there's an army in this hill, uh, in these hills, uh, buried in these hills. And, and it's one of those places where you, when, you, when you turn the soil in your garden for your spuds, you end up having to put bones out for the bones people that come round and do this. It, uh, uh, and we found a couple of imperial soldiers. I think we found a South African and a Kiwi guy. It's mainly Germans, hundreds of Germans in this place. What happens if you find a body now? What's the process now? Well, that is a really good question, and it still goes on in quite significant numbers. And you're talking about dozens of, of, of bodies that are discovered every year, sometimes in big numbers. So at Messine uh, recently, there was a, a big group of New Zealanders found, you know, all across the, the former Western Front, this is still happening. And further afield as well. You know, there are still air crews from the Second World War who, who crashed uh, in places like Norway, you know, maybe the North Russia, uh, and their graves are, are still being kind of discovered and recovered today. So there's a process that goes uh, that goes on uh, with the War Graves Commission, with the military of, of whichever country is, is involved, whether it's Australia or Canada. Uh, or the UK. Um, there's a process of identification often for, for various countries. Different countries do it differently. So the Australians are, are very keen on DNA testing. Uh, the UK, not so much. It's, it's much harder to do in the UK. You need a, a very close match before, you know, a, a kind of sample before you can match it against that. You know, again, it's the kind of CSI issue. Everyone thinks DNA solves everything and, you know, you can get an easy answer from, from the DNA. That's not necessarily the case. But it's effectively the same thing 
happens now that happened in the First World War. You know, people are given a military grave in a cemetery, the same headstone. If the family can be found, they're given a chance to, to, to provide an inscription. So it's that same job, effectively, that hasn't changed over 100 years. And it still happens with the same kind of uh, dignity and the same kind of honour as, as it did then. And what about, and what about remembrance? And, and, and what about, you know, uh, as it's Remembrance Sunday? I mean, are the... I mean, obviously, COVID has, has put pay to, a, to travel to the Western Front and to a lot of the cemeteries and stuff. But just t- take COVID out of it, take this last anomaly uh, year out of it. I mean, footfall is, is still pretty good, isn't it? Of people visiting cemeteries? Yeah, it's huge. And, and certainly the centenary of the First World War um, led to a huge upshot, not just of people visiting, but people finding more information about their family members. You know, you think how much we've got now through the internet, uh, through looking at kind of genealogical stuff, watching things like Who Do You Think You Are? You know, there's been a huge upsurge in, in that kind of individual research from just, you know, ordinary people. And that, again, leads to interest and visiting. And the Second World War, of course, you know, we, we've, we've, we've just got past, or we're reaching the, the, the time when, when the last veterans are, are going to be leaving us. And that's a really important moment. You know, that time is gone now for the First World War. And I think, you know, it's important for us to think about what this looks like in, in 25 years' time, in 50 years' time, in 100 years' time. Uh, and I think, you know, for me, remembrance and, you know, all these every year we have this debate about poppies and, and all of this stuff. But I think it, it, in some ways that often gets in the way of us thinking properly about what this means to us. And, you know, for me, remembrance is, is about two different things. It's partly about emotion. And that, you know, that feeling of being moved and, and, and genuine emotion. But also it's about understanding and about trying to understand the world in which these people lived and, and the war that they fought and why they fought and the effects of that war. Mm. And I think if you have one without the other, there's a problem there, you know, because that emotion is going to diminish as well, we it, move uh, further away. Uh, and and um, remembrance can manifest itself as a form of protest, too, because what was happening in Royal Wooden Bassett during the um, last phase of the Afghan uh, ad- adventure, if you want to call it that, whatever it was, conflict war. Those crowds gathering to welcome those servicemen back, that was that was a protest as much as it was anything else, wasn't it? it was people turning out and saying, uh, uh, this shouldn't be happening, this is wrong. And and I think, well, I think one of the, I, I mean, I personally think one of the upsurges in, in, in remembrance that we are experiencing, in the, it, 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 and, and this the poppy debate aside, is I think people really grasping how ghastly the war was in a way that maybe had been shoved to one side because after all post-war and we've talked this about this a lot James and I that you know the the decades that following the war the people who fought the war like right I'm glad that's over we need to get on with our lives rebuilding our country I'd rather not talk about it thanks very much because it was horrible and that, that, that what's happened generationally is a sort of understanding of how what a hideous event this was and that's where remembrance uh, uh, it, it also forms a sort of form of protest. Don't do this again, polit- you know, politicians. That's a lot of what's happening in remembrance, I think, and always was, in, it, it, as, as, as much as the glorious dead and bugles and all that. It's as much to do with saying, you better not do this again, thank you very much. Yeah, and at the time there were people saying, as Edmund Blunden put it, why spend money on the dead? You know, we've got plenty of people who are living, dependents, families, pensions, all of that stuff. You know, the idea that this is somehow new, you know, there were there were veterans protests at the Cenotaph soon after it was it was erected. You know, the idea that this is somehow, you know, one view of this and, and that there should be no debate or but you know, yeah, I think the one thing that I think we've 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 seen in recent years is a huge uh, upsurge in understanding about the nature of, of the war effort the kind of people who are involved, particularly from from around the Empire and the Commonwealth. Um, you know, I think far more people are aware now that there were Indian uh, soldiers, Sikhs, Muslims, all of this kind of thing. And of course, that has an impact on, on debates and, and understanding today. But 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 today on Remembrance Sunday, do, do you, Glyn and Al, do you have a, a, a particular grave that you would like to visit if you could and bow your head? And do you see it as a, as a whole? I mean, you know, I, I always stand down in my... Normally, in my uh, you know when I'm when I'm here, I kind of go down to the village war memorial and think about that. But I always find myself because I didn't know any of the people who died from this village. I always find myself thinking of particular people that I've I've written about or I've come across or graves that I've visited. And you know, it's it's it, knowing that we were going to be talking about it today. I, I've been sort of thinking about some of the 
graves that I've visited, you know, Keith Douglas, the, the great poet, who's buried at Tilly Sassoul, and, and obviously that chap from the Dorsets at Kahima and, and several others. And I, uh, you know, and I was reminded about Alex Mackey, who was this very unremarkable hurricane pilot on Malta. In January 1942, he, 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 he took off for a, for a, a test flight in a hurricane and uh, four Messerschmitt 109s had flown over from Sicily and come in under the radar and just as he was taken off from Tikali airfield he was hammered and, and and his hurricane was in a very very bad way and obviously he didn't have much height to play with because he'd only just taken off and he curved around the hills and got into this beautiful beautiful valley and at the end of this valley there's a rise and beyond that is the Dingley Cliffs and, and if he'd got that he, he possibly could have bailed out okay um and what happens is he goes into this beautiful valley and hits and loses control and hits this big wall of this old, what had once been a kind of sort of monastery garden um, and gets flung out of the harness snaps and he's flung about 25 yards ahead of the crashed hurricane and he's still alive. And the other side of the valley is this tiny little church and the people at the church see him and they, they get a wooden ladder and go and get him, put him, use the ladder as a stretcher and take him up to... Uh, and call an ambulance. An ambulance comes down, takes him up to Imtafa Hospital, where he dies three or four days later. When I was first researching my book on the on the siege of Malta in the Second World War, it was the first history book I'd ever done. And and literally one of the first folders I looked at when I first went to the Imperial War Museum, which was the first bit of research I did, was of a senior sister at Imtafa Hospital, and she'd kept all her papers. And amongst her papers was a letter from Alex Mackey's mother. And obviously she had written to her saying, very sorry about your son. I want you to know he didn't suffer, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, she wrote this letter back saying, thank you so much for sending it to me. And the last paragraph said, one day when this cruel war is over, I'm going to visit Malta and see where my boy is buried. And I remember the hairs on the back of my neck just standing up and just thinking, oh my God. Anyway, a few a couple of weeks later, I then visited um, I visited Malta and went to the wonderful um, aviation museum at Tikali, and was talking to Ray Polidano and Frederick Galea there, who were the guys who were running it at the time. And I was recounting the story, and Frederick said to me, he said, "Follow me," uh, and we went to this sort of dusty corner of of the museum, and um, he said, uh, and there was sort of bits of old aircraft and and bits of sort of mangled hurricane, and he said that is the remains of Alex Mackey's hurricane. And he said, I can show you exactly where it was he came across. And the hole in the wall in that beautiful, beautiful valley, possibly the most beautiful valley anywhere in Malta, um, is still there where his hurricane crashed. Um, and obviously I then went to go and visit his grave. So I did I did go and see his grave. And um, and some years ago, his, his great niece or, or one of his family members collared me at the Chalk Valley History Festival. And it was, it was wonderful to to kind of to have that sort of completion of that story the story that sort of started me that human story that started me on on the kind of journey I've been on with the second world war in terms of kind of talking about it and writing about it and and so on to then have that kind of relative so I kind of always think about him when it, whenever it comes to remembrance sunday well for me it's my my grandfather and uh uh who was killed at Harzerbrook and uh, in 1940, and they were buried by the, the six guys were uh, men from the Ox and Bucks, from the Bucks Battalion, were buried by the orphanage janitor in secret in the in the town. And then after the war, they were reinterred in the in the graveyard in the village. There in there's I think there's half a dozen, or maybe a few more um, CWGC graves in a row with my grandfather and some other lads. And we went there in 2000 and eight nine something like that went went and had a look um when they did the commemoration and i just sort of think of him as you know he was a he wasn't a soldier he was a he was a regular person he was a, a, a you know did hadn't chosen the soldier's life um the war had chosen him um my mother never knew him because he was killed before she was born and that that's what I think about um uh, on remembrance sunday i think about him and i think about and 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 then his brother-in-law was killed in Burma with the Gloucesters I think about my grandmother and what the what the war did to her um and how her life that that you know in a way if you're killed you get to you, you you don't get to carry the burden of the aftermath you you leave it you leave it behind but she had to live with losing her brother and her husband and that I 
more than I mean I think of my grandfather but I think of my grandmother really when I when I think of remembrance it's that her life she lived in remembrance um and and recall and commemoration or which are all different slightly different things of course that's what I think of with the silence is is her life and what it what the impact it it, it had it must have had on her well, like you, James, writing Citizen Sailors, uh, you know, I use loads of, of diaries and, and letters. And very often, of course, with, with sailors, with the Royal Navy, there's no grave. You know, the names, if you're lost at sea, your name will be on a, a naval memorial at Portsmouth, Plymouth or Chatham. Uh, and one that, that I particularly remember was a chap called Ian Anderson, who was a submariner, HMS Odin, out of Malta. And he died on their very first kind of uh, trip out to sea, you know, after, against the Italians. And of course, he'd written a letter to be sent home in the event that he died, that he never came back. Uh, and, you know, I remember reading that letter in the, in the War Museum and, and you know, it, it, I'm not sure I could read it now. It, it does bring you, bring you to tears. Um, but I, I also remember very vividly uh, on D-Day, the anniversary of D-Day, um, 75th anniversary uh, last year, uh, very early in the morning, I was in Bayou War Cemetery um, just walking around, um, kind of you know, taking in the atmosphere. The sun was just coming up. And I spotted the grave of a Royal Marine called Edward Dern, who died on the 6th of June on D-Day. He was 17 years old. And the inscription mm. that his family had chosen for the grave uh, was, Into the mosaic of victory, our most precious peace was laid. And for me, oh. I, you know, that speaks so much to, to so many things. Uh, you know, all mm, of those that wonderful. different people who, who made such sacrifices in all kinds of different ways. Um, and God, yeah. you're getting me choked up just thinking about I know, about it's that. difficult, isn't it? But yeah. Glyn, thank you so much for talking to us today. Um, ag- again, um, there is something very special about talking to someone who really does know the subject inside out. And, and such an important one that's, a, a di- you know, different to our usual diet of Merlin engines and cavity magnetrons. So um, th- thank you very much. And, and, and lots of food, food for thought, actually. Um, uh, things to yep. think about, things to reflect on, um, on on a day like today. So thank you very much. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Pleasure. Well, I don't know about you, but I think um, that was an absolutely fascinating conversation and uh, uh, lots of food for thought. And, and so what James and I thought we'd do today is is do a couple of uh, short readings for you um i've picked a bit of spike milligan it's a short section but it's when his favorite officer tony goldsmith is killed and how he feels about that so and then james will be reading a poem by keith douglas 24th of april fighting on long stop at a crescendo all day op under murderous fire support group at bottom of hill also under heavy shell fire gunner collins hit in hand At about 11.10, I heard the dreadful news. Lieutenant Goldsmith had been killed. Alf Files noted in his diary, learn with regret we have lost our best officer. I went back to my cave and wept. I remember calling his name. After a few minutes, I straightened up, but the memory of that day remains vivid. Apparently, he and Bombardier Edwards were sheltering in a foxhole. We were under mortar attack. We sat facing each other, our knees touching. Tony had the mat board on his chest his arms folded round it. Suddenly I was blown out of the trench. I went to get back in and saw that Tony had been hit by a mortar bomb in the chest. He died instantly. All the boys came back very shaken. God knows how the infantry stick that for two weeks at a time. Bombardier Dodds was so bomb happy he went to hospital and never came back. For someone as splendid, kind, intelligent and witty as Tony, to be killed outraged my sensibilities. His friend, Terence Rattigan, wrote a personal obituary in the Times. I remember his last words to me. He was about to leave for long stop. It won't be long now. I'd say Tunis in ten days. He was patting his pockets. Blast, I'm out of cigarettes. I gave him five of mine. Here, sir, have five of my soap-saturated passing clouds. A holy medal in every packet. He took them, smiled, tapped the driver on the shoulder and said, To battle. So this is a poem called Vergissmeinicht, and it's by Keith Douglas, who was a member of my favourite regiment, uh, the Sherwood Rangers Yeomanry, until he was killed in Normandy on the 8th of June 1944. 
But before that, he'd been in North Africa. Um, he was probably the greatest war poet that Britain produced during the Second World War. I don't know whether he's underrated or not, but he certainly wrote some amazing poetry. Um, he was also a very talented artist. Um, and on top of that, wrote a fabulous memoir called Alamein to Zemzem, um, which I think we've talked about before, but it's really fabulous. Anyway, this is called Vergismeinicht. Three weeks gone and the combatants gone. Returning over the nightmare ground, we found the place again and found the soldier sprawling in the sun, the frowning barrel of his gun overshadowing. As we came on that day, he hit my tank with one like the entry of a demon. Look, here in the gun pit spoil, the dishonoured picture of his girl who has put Steffi, vergismeinicht, in a copybooked gothic script. We see him almost with content, abased and seeming to have paid and mocked at by his own equipment that's hard and good when he's decayed. But she would weep to see today how on the skin the swart flies move, the dust upon the paper eye and the burst stomach like a cave. For here the lover and killer are mingled, who had one body and one heart, and death, who had the soldier singled, has done the lover mortal hurt. Well, we hope you liked those. Um, we thought that the best way to end uh, the podcast today is with the last post and Ravalli and some silence. Uh, thanks again for listening. Uh, we'll see you next time. Cheerio.